If you're enjoying the show so far, please consider helping by supporting our show. Although never expected, any support for our show enables us to keep bringing the audiobook club to your ears. So, Cara, thank you so, so much for joining us. We're absolutely thrilled to be speaking with you uh, on the show. How have you been? How's lockdown been treating you so far? Well, um, I'm very lucky. I've got a garden. And so the first time round in the summer, like a lot of people, it, it, it actually wasn't too bad in some ways. Looking back now, it's weird, isn't it? Because it had a sort of novelty value, um, which has totally gone now. <laughs> Absolutely nobody's finding this interesting anymore. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's just like Groundhog Day, isn't it? You know, wh- you know which, which year is it even? I mean, because <laughs> the point where you don't know what day of the week it is. So. Uh, last last year I was finishing um, the last edits of The Whole Truth and, and found it pretty hard going even though basically the book was there um, but it was just really hard to concentrate and I know a lot of writers who've really struggled I mean I know one person who's not written a thing since this whole thing started you're just you know completely blocked by it and I, I, I do get that and, and now I'm trying to write another book and I'm about as we speak I'm about 40,000 words into it and uh, it's it's good it's fine I mean I'm very lucky I've got a job I can do at home and you know in some ways my life hasn't changed very much because I work a lot at home on my own um but in, in other ways because you know you can't do anything you can't meet your mates you can't you know go on holiday uh, you know you don't feel that you've got any treats lined up um as well which is what I always really look forward to and normally I'd be I'd be writing now but I would have come off a lovely summer where I'd have gone away and you know I'd have come back and thought right okay down to work but yeah no that happens so <laughs> but yeah. anyway I'm managing I'm managing I'm I know I'm a lot better off than a lot of people so I'm not it's, known. it's that thing isn't it as soon as you're told that you're not allowed to do something even if you had no plans to do that before that's the only thing you ever want to do I know. I know exactly it's like it's like my cats you know the one thing that they don't they want to do is the thing that you don't want them to do <laughs> absolutely I'd love to kind of start at the beginning have you always wanted to write did it ever even seem possible becoming a professional author well I I've always loved reading I've always loved books I did um, English at university and so I mean I think for some people that puts them off becoming a writer because they, they've become somewhat as it were daunted by um, how good other people are um, but there's a flip side to that as well in that you learn a lot you learn a lot about how to put a book together and how to develop character and you know the various pieces of mechanical apparatus that a writer has at their disposal to to you know to deal with so I don't know first person versus third person or you know flashback versus present tense and all of those things so you do learn a bit about it even if you're not trying to write yourself at that time um, and then I just went and got a job like everybody else and I and to start with I was I was in finance so I wasn't even really working with words at all um, and then eventually what ended up working PR and I was doing a lot more writing and I became a copywriter so it's sort of I was edging back towards it if that makes sense um, but it no it didn't it didn't really happen until I went freelance because um, I didn't have enough time and I think that's why I think that you know that the, the thing that you know the famous thing that Virginia Woolf used to say about a room of your own in which to write but it's also time of your own and if you're doing a full-time job and you know remember the days when people commuted to work <laughs> <laughs> yeah is that ever coming back um but certainly I was I was commuting and that takes another you know hour either end of the day or more um and I 
I just didn't have time. But once I became freelance, it's one of those jobs where it's feast and famine. You're either completely ridiculously busy or you're in a down patch. So it um, gave me the time to try. And, um, you know, the rest is history, I suppose. <laughs> So moving on from that, um, from when you were when you were writing, so uh, we have to talk about the, the overwhelming reaction to Close to Home. Uh, so when you're writing something like that, when you were writing it, uh, did you ever get a sense uh, that you were on the edge of something just huge? Or is it something you can't really judge until until it's out there? I had a feeling it was probably OK. Um, I think I've written enough now to know when a book is singing. Um, and, and sometimes it get, you get the feeling it's running away with you and that's always a really good sign. If that's happening, then yeah, you're probably onto something. It doesn't mean it's perfect, no book ever is, but it means it's got something. Um, it's got some sort of momentum in it. Um, I did think the twist was pretty good, even though I say it myself and I'm no spoilers, I won't, I won't talk about that, but um, that's the first thing that came to me. Um, and I remember thinking, ah, oh, okay, yeah, that might work. Um, and then, of course, it was, as it were, I was constructing the book backwards in some ways in that I had to create a story that would let, lead up to that, um, that twist. And, and the thing I always want with twists uh, at the end of my books is I want the reader to react um, or the listener um, to react in, in, uh, in two ways. First of all, to go, oh, my God. But very, very quickly after that to say, but of course. Yeah. Of course it was that. You know, so I, I don't want them to feel hoodwinked by the twist or deceived by the book. You know, you don't want someone turning out to be a murderer who's only appeared on you know three pages from the end, because everyone feels cheated by that. So you don't want that. You want them to feel that even if they didn't see it coming, they can now see it makes sense. Um, so I had to create a story in the first book where it would actually do that it would be something that would make sense to, uh, at the end even though people weren't expecting it um, so that led to the whole family dynamic thing which I'm very interested in and as you may know from the other books I'm really interested in family dynamics especially dysfunctional families um, and then I thought well okay so someone's going to be investigating this so we're going to have to have a police angle even if it's not a fully fledged police procedural it has to have an investigative investigatory strand um, so that's where we ended up with um, Forty and the team. And I definitely didn't know it's going to turn into a series. I, I didn't even know it would necessarily even be published. Um, so I certainly didn't sit down and say, right, I've got these characters. And over the course of 27 books, they are going to do. The <laughs> I know there are some people actually do that. I heard someone once say before he wrote his first book, he already had a plan for all 10 of them. I thought, crikey, that's a, well, that's an act of faith, isn't it? <laughs> I think as as a as a um, a reader, a reading fan, and an audiobook fan, etc. Um, I think the thing that I marvel most at is how authors such as yourself are just they are able to plot so perfectly and almost lead like this trail of breadcrumbs that it leads up to an inevitable inevitable ending that you never saw coming, and it's that it's that twist that you spoke of where you sort of you're like oh my gosh I can't believe that was it and then you think oh no of course because everything was leading up to that. Uh, yeah. I think especially if you go in and read um, the material again, you're able to then see more of them. Yeah, I, well, I love that. I mean, obviously, um, books like I write crime books very rarely get read a second time. It's not it's not that sort of a book. But I, I love the idea that if someone did read it a second time, some people have, um, then they'll say, oh, I didn't realise I didn't see that bit. Or, you know, so which is which is lovely. Um, but in terms of plotting them out. Yes, I'm a I'm a really serious 
plotter. I, I have, by the time I actually start writing properly, I've got a synopsis that could be 30 pages long. You know, so it's actually seen by, it doesn't start that long. It starts as a paragraph and then it starts to grow. And eventually, you know, it's in, you've got a, a scaffolding for the whole book. Doesn't mean things don't change as you go along, but at least I've, I've got you know, like a safety blanket and say, yeah, I know where I'm going. Um, but a lot of those really delicious little Easter eggs that you're talking about go in right at the end because things have changed. And uh, then you're doing your, your reads and rereads at the end. And then you realize, oh, I could just, oh yes, I could just pop that in there. And, and, and it, it's, it's the most delicious bit of the whole process is going back and putting down the Easter eggs. And, and I love doing that. I and mean, that's when a book becomes huge fun to do. First drafts are always drudgery, um, but you know what they say, it's not about getting it right, it's about getting it down. So you just have to grit your teeth and say, right, here comes another thousand words and another thousand words. I will eventually get them. (laughs) (laughs) I actually um, found your books through audiobooks. Um, Do you listen to audiobooks? Do you enjoy them? Have you got any particular favourites? Yes, I I do. I I do like to listen. I I do audio books. I also do podcasts, which I think a lot of people do now as well. And uh, yes, it's... I think it's a really nice way of doing it, especially I think with a series as well. A lot of people say about the the 40 books that they, they're really into the narrators because it's the same every time. So they really like Lee Ingleby doing Adam and Emma kind of doing the other narration. Um, so I, I think there's a there's a great deal of comfort around that, that it's something that you're, you're used to. So, yeah, and we're very lucky actually with Close to Home. Um, uh, Penguin really pushed the boat out and they actually did a full cast of it, as, as you probably know. So I think there's actually 37 voices in the first one where they uh, obviously there's the professional actors. And um, then they it was really lovely because they opened it up to people in Penguin um, who wanted to come along and read a voice because the Twitter voices are all different people. Uh, so people were just turning up saying, can I do one? And I'm in there as well. It's my Hitchcock moment. I'm one of the people in there. So. Right. <laughs> What do you think it is about um, about uh, an audiobook um, uh, version of uh, a, a book that sort of makes it accessible to new uh, listeners? Do you think it's the performance aspect of it? Do you think it's the, maybe the, the added sense of um, of the story? What, um, have you got any thoughts on why perhaps audiobooks have, have definitely uh, grown in popularity over yeah. the, uh, the last decade or so? Uh, no, I think it's a really good question. I, I think there's probably a practical answer to that and, and as it were, an emotional one. Uh, I think the practical answer is you can take them with you wherever you're going. You can do other things, you know, so because we we're all we're all like this. You know, we're all doing eight things at once, aren't we? And, and double screening all the time and all of this. But, yeah, it means you can you can be in the gym or you can, you know, out for a walk or whatever and, and, and still listen. And I think the practical side of it is immense. And I think that's probably why podcasts have grown as well for exactly the same reason. Um, but also, I think the emotional side is you, you do get that the the resonance of the human voice, uh, and you can feel closer to a character if it's coming to you in speech, perhaps than in words. Um, some people prefer to read and have their own imagination of what it, the person sounds like, but others obviously really, really like having a professional actor give that extra layer of, of poignancy or emotion or whatever. But I think that's probably a lot of it. Well, speaking of actors, I am very excited for the television. <laughs> that was a good little segue. Well done. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> How does something like that happen? I mean, is there anything that you can tell us about it? 
Well, it's, I, I mean, it was, it was complete closed book to me. Aha, see what I did there. Complete closed <laughs> book to me um, beforehand. I, I knew absolutely nothing about it. Um, I mean, you, you essentially, as a writer, you, you, have, you have an agent, obviously, um, but uh, they will generally only handle the print uh, and, and audio, but the print and audio bits of the book. Uh, they will normally have a specialist either within their own agency or they'll have a partner agency um, who do the film and TV side because it's you know it's a very, very different set of contacts. It's a very different type of world. Um, so that was the case with us. We, we um, my, my agents had a partner agency and then they will take the books to uh, production companies essentially because that's, that's the way it's done. It, you don't go direct to the likes of ITV or whatever, um, you, it's a production company that has to make it. So you go to them and then once they've taken it on and they'll buy an option and that's the way they do it because um, they don't know whether they're going to be able to sell it on. So the production companies essentially don't have huge pots of money to make things. Um, they, they have to have a contract with a network in order to be able to then put the thing in process. So um, you'll get a, a small amount of money up front um, just as an option. Because obviously they've got to stop you going and selling it to somebody else while, while they're trying to put together their, their, you know, their, their pitch documents. So you know, they, they sort of put you on hold for a while while they do that. And then um, obviously you wait until they've gone to a, to a network, got the contract, and then you get into the stage of actors and, and all of that. But, you know, we're not quite there yet. <laughs> so exciting. It uh, is, it really is. And we've, Cause we've got a wonderful screenwriter on board. Uh, I don't know, I, I, you may have seen, I tweeted and um, put it on Instagram, but um, Daisy Coulomb is our screenwriter for it. And she writes Grantchester and um, has also written uh, things like uh, Deadwater Fell, which is her own work. and. And she's fabulous, not only hugely successful and talented, but she's so nice as well. So I'm looking forward to actually meeting her. I mean, I've only met her on Zoom at the moment. I think that can just so improve any process of working with people that are not only obviously talented and, 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 and where they're at, but also just working with people who are just nice to be around yeah yeah you're right and and I think that's one of the things they're saying about this whole sort of zoom um, experience that we're all having that uh, it's you know it, it's putting different types of stresses on relationships at work you know it's and a lot of people are saying quite rightly that it's it's not too bad for keeping relationships going when you already have one so it's someone you knew before but it's actually quite difficult to build a team or bring in new people because they've never had a chance to interact with each other any other way than this which is pretty artificial yeah. um so yeah it's it's a uh, it's hopefully we won't have to do it for that much longer <laughs> I second that. I hope so too. Uh, so when it comes to um, writing um, sort of police uh, procedurals, um, obviously uh, you paint a, a quite an accurate picture. Um, do you have any particular sources that you go to uh, when referencing um, that sort of procedural? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good story here because um, to start with, when I first wrote the first version of uh, Close to Home that, that went to publishers, um, I hadn't spoken to anybody apart from all I'd done was internet research. And it's amazing what you can find if you, if you go looking. Um, and obviously I, I watch loads of crime, true crime and crime drama. So I suppose it sort of um, went in by osmosis, some of it. But no, I hadn't spoken to anybody. To be honest, I didn't feel, um, I didn't really feel able to go to, to try to contact uh, a busy police officer yeah. uh, who's doing you know, a really difficult, challenging job and say, look, 
I'm a would-be writer, could you spend loads of time going through my book with me? And I just didn't feel able to do that. I didn't feel it was justified. Um, so I went in with my agent to meet um, the wonderful woman who's now my editor at Penguin. And uh, one of the first things she said was, this feels so authentic. You must have spoken to so many police officers. <laughs> so I sort of put my hand up, so I bashed and said, oh, actually, I wouldn't expect anyone. So she laughed her head off and then said, well, I think you need to find yourself a tame policeman. And, and I thought at that point, yeah, actually now is probably the time. <laughs> Um, so through a friend of a friend, um, I met up with, uh, uh, well, he's now a DI, he was an inspector at the time, but he'd been a detective sergeant. So um, he had a lot of uh, a CID experience and he was he's in Thames Valley as well. And uh, he used to work in this area that I live in. So he knows the city and everything. And he's really nice and really helpful. And um, I've learned a lot from him. And I also managed to find, uh, through, again, through a friend of a friend, uh, somebody who used to be a practicing CSI. Oh, wow. He's brilliant. He's also terrifying. I mean, <laughs> some of the stories he's told me and I'm thinking, oh, no, I could not I could not put that in a book. I really could not put that in a book. And, he's, you know, if I ask him about things like oh, effects of injury or something, he'll send me photographs. And, and he, I him <laughs> <laughs> not to send me the photographs. <laughs> but, no, it's brilliant because he knows exactly how you, you would approach a scene. And he's told me some stories which have ended up in the books, just little side things about like the type of humour they have when they're working in a morgue, which isn't something you really would assume. But, you know, any, any way of getting through it, I suppose. <laughs> it's, so, it's so fascinating to speak with these people, with these experiences. And, yeah, as you say, like the humour um, for people in jobs that you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily yeah. think so. But, of course, they would. Human beings, you know, you have to... You've got to find a way. Of, yeah, you've got to find a way of dealing with it. So, so yes, it's, it, he he is fascinating, and um, it, he's one of the people uh, that I would talk to quite early on in developing a story as well. I mean, other advisors that I have, I bring them in later once there's something they can actually look at. Um, and, and Andy, the police officer, is usually at that stage rather than too early, but. Um, but Joey, the CSI guy, so much now depends on forensics and DNA uh, that there's absolutely no point putting a huge synopsis together, never mind actually writing something. When, it, when a CSI would demolish it in five minutes flat, you know, you know, you get to the crime scene and say, oh, well, that's it. You know, what, you, you know it's not a story anymore. Yeah. Um, so I, I have to talk to him early and say, will this, would this actually work? Has it, has it ever happened to your knowledge? And, and the loveliest moment of all is when I say something like that and he says, hmm, I've never seen it, but yeah, you could do it. <laughs> And that actually happened with the whole truth, which is the one that's coming out next. Uh, that uh, the, the great big sort of, as it were, forensic moment in that in that book was one of those, which was really great. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> I'd love to kind of talk about your at home setup. Obviously, everyone is working from home right now. Yeah. Do you give yourself a daily word count or a set amount of hours to write? I mean, are you always writing? First of all, I, I find it quite hard if I don't feel inspired to sit down and write. So I can imagine if it's your job, that could be quite difficult. Yeah, I know, I know what you mean. Because I was a copywriter before, I suppose I had the luck of, as it were, training without without knowing I was doing that. But but training myself that this is a commitment. This is, a, you know, I have a deadline. I have a promise I've got to keep to. Um 
and I can't afford, as a copywriter, you can't afford to sit there having writer's block or just staring at a blank screen. You've got to do something. Um, so I sort of trained myself to write through the blocks, as it were. And I, I always use the analogy of a snowplow. You, you, you push and push and push and, and it's still not working. You go back and you try a slightly different angle and, and you just keep going. You will eventually get through. It may not be the most perfect solution, but once you've got through, you'll be able to circle back later and you know play with it um so so yes i'm quite disciplined i tend to write quite you know early-ish in the morning from about nine-ish through to about two or three and then i get tired and it gets not very good so i stop um and i usually don't set myself word counts but i am at the moment which is sort of a you know reflection on lockdown that it's not feeling as much fun as it has in the past and therefore I'm saying okay you've got to just keep going keep going keep going if I can tick off like I said that thousand words at a time or whatever it is in a day then at least I feel I'm getting somewhere and we'll get to the point in the process which is more fun. So apart from writing bestsellers uh, <laughs> what do you find Cara Hunter doing on an average weekday? Uh, so right now not a lot. <laughs> <laughs> It might be a little bit harder to uh, harder to answer in lockdown. I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. <laughs> um, I mean, I go for walks. Um, I I watch loads of crime on TV. I, I told you that, didn't I? Um, it's my guilty pleasure. I watch it all the time. Um, but it's, it, I mean, my husband teases me, but now he doesn't because he says, ah, research. <laughs> Which is... <laughs> which actually is what it is because um, I've, I've lost count of the number of times where I've got something from having watched something on TV perhaps a year before or it may even just be a tiny nugget it's not a whole story I don't and that, that doesn't happen but um, it's a tiny nugget a tiny fact something that surprised you and and I, I find that a, a plot will evolve by a sort of clustering process i.e you have one idea and then another idea from over here and then, and, and then another idea from over here, and then suddenly they start, as it were, stick together. And, and it's the combination that makes it interesting or a new twist. So, it, 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 and, and that stuff can come from anywhere. So that's why I'm such a magpie. I think a lot of writers are. You just, you need, just need to keep shoveling stuff in your brain and eventually that magic cluster moment will start. And, and I, you just have to be, I, I find I just have to trust that it will eventually happen. Yeah. Super. It's one of those things where I think sometimes the truth really is stranger than fiction. Yeah, you're right. And there are so many of these true crime things where you think, well, my editor wouldn't let me get away with that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah, it did actually happen. Um, and the thing I find most interesting about them, which is why I'm sort of addicted to them, is not so much what happens, it's why. It's the motivation, because that's by definition in true crime, it did happen. So however outlandish it might appear now, however bizarre people's motivations seem, they did do that. It did actually happen. So that's what I find interesting. It's, it's the why. Yeah, and the same. Um, so the whole truth is available to pre-order now. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you can tell us? Any little sneak bits? <laughs> well, um, <laughs> you might have seen the strap lines on the, on the front of it if you've seen the, the cover and it's, um, I do like to each each book look at something very topical if I can. I mean, it's not, you know, if I can't find it, it's not a problem, but it's really nice if I can take a very contemporary issue and explore it. And I think um, the best crime, I'm not saying that that's what I'm writing, but, you know, really good crime novels 
um, I, I think are a great commentary on, on the times in which they're written. Uh, and it's a genre which can actually do that very well because it's, it's dealing with people in extreme circumstances. So I think that that actually does give you an interesting way in to look at some of these issues. Um, and so I, I have done that in the past with other books, as you probably know, but in this case, it's, um, it's doing a take on Me Too. Uh, so we're looking at the whole issue of, sort of sexual harassment and it is actually set on, um, on in, in the university environment here, which I don't usually do much with. But obviously, in this case, it makes sense. But I flipped it. Um, and so the person who's who's alleging the incident has happened is a man and the alleged perpetrator is a woman. So it's it's the other way around and uh, she's the professor and he's the student. So it's very interesting way of looking at all the sort of gender politics aspects of it and, and who's telling the truth, hence partly the title, who's telling the truth. And in a situation like that, how do, how do you work out who's telling the truth? Are the only people there with them? So he said, she said. So that, that's that's what I'm doing this, this time. And, and it, it was really interesting to do. I did enjoy doing it. A wee for one, a wee for two, I should say, can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> so are there any other future projects that you may be working on that you could tell us a little bit about? So anything that's exciting um, that, that we maybe haven't uh, covered just yet? Is there anything on the horizons? Nothing beyond the end of book, book six at the moment. So that's sort of, um, you know, beyond that, we're, we're, we're looking at how I'm looking at hopefully having some time off on a holiday, but um, <laughs> aren't we all? Uh, one of these days, I'd love to write a standalone. Um, it may be a while yet because obviously I'm going to keep writing 40 books if people want to read them. I mean, obviously, if it comes to a point people don't want to read them anymore, that's fine. I'm not going to keep doing it unless people want them. But one of these days I'd like to do a standalone, um, but I, I don't have a plot or anything like that in mind. And uh, I, I do love, I know I've been slightly whinging so far about it. it's not very exciting at the moment, but I do love what I do and I'm really lucky at what I do. And, and I love the, the whole 40 setup purely by chance, because as, as I explained earlier, it all happened just for one book, but it's turned out to be something that's, got legs and, and the team are really nice and I like bringing a couple of new people in and mo moving them around a bit and yeah so I, I'm very happy and very lucky with what I'm doing at the moment. I mean we love what you do we can oh bless you. <laughs> um, a lot of our audience are aspiring writers, screenwriters, what advice would you give someone who's struggling to try and get their work out there? Yeah, it's a, it's a, a very good question, and there's, there's no, as it, as it won't surprise you, there's no really a magic bullet uh, answer to that. I, I think if you're a writer, you have to have a lot of persistence, um, and you, you have to grow quite a thick skin, uh, and that's not easy. And um, you need it for lots of reasons, though. You need it because uh, you're going to get people who turn your stuff down. Everybody has that. So, you know, and you can't afford for it to to stop you working and stop you trying. You know, you, you can't afford to be defeated too easily. So you need a bit of a thick skin for that. And the other thing you have to have thick skin for is that um, even once you're published, you're going to get feedback from different people, from your editor, all the way through to people who leave you a one-star review on Amazon um, you know, to say, I'm not, I, you know, you've got to change this or it's not very good or I don't like it. Or, uh, and it doesn't matter how many times you tell yourself that it's okay you're never going to please everyone all the time it, 
you know, you, it still sometimes gets to you. And I think that's a, that's a tough thing. And, and the way to grow a bit of that thick skin before you're published is to make sure you share your work with other people. You know, share it with people that know you, that care about you, who, who will try to help you and not just be gratuitously unpleasant about what you've written. No, they'll, they'll try and be constructive. Um, but it does, I, I know a lot of um, aspiring writers who get very sort of possessive about their work and don't want to show it to anybody, that, which I understand. I, I actually completely get that. But in the long run, it's not helpful because you, you are going to have to open up at some point. And, and the earlier you do that, the easier it will be, I think. It's such a tricky one, isn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, we have uh, a few questions uh, submitted uh, online through uh, by uh, Louisa Calverley, uh, and she asks, uh, on average, how long does it take you to complete a manuscript, uh, and how many drafts before it makes it to the printed page? Now, it's a very good question. Um, mine take, I'm quite quick, um, mine take about four months, first, first draft's about four months, which is quite quick. Um, but then then you, you're into the revisions phase. So I would do probably at least two more drafts myself before I would send it to my editor and my agent. Um, and then we tend to do about two more goes around after that. So it's a bit like you think of a graph where you get to the point where you think, oh, well, I've finished. Hurrah, it's at the top of the graph. And then there's sort of a huge long tail after that, because <laughs> even, even after you've gone through the bits with your agent and your editor, you're then into copy editing and then you're into production and then you're into. And, and so it takes actually, you know, there's, there's probably six months extra on the end of the four months I think I've finished. And then I've got then but then there's. So any one time I've got I've got a book in editing, I've got a book in writing, I've got a book in production, you know, so you've got all the different um, different layers of it, uh, which are fun. They are fun. Uh, but it, it, it means you've, you've got to sort of keep your brain as to which book am I talking about? <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask, do you find it difficult then to to go from, you know, to get your head in one book and then know that that, OK, now you have to focus on this one in editing? And do you find it difficult to jump between the projects? You have to. Be, you have to be careful actually because um especially with things like adam forley's private life uh, you know things are happening to him say for example um things are happening in when i was writing the whole truth and the all the rage had just come out there are things that are happening to adam in the whole truth which i absolutely shouldn't have said to anybody until the book came out uh, but you know people are talking to you about all the rage and if you're not careful some of this stuff can spit out and you think oh no 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 one else knows that yet you know <laughs> so you know that that aspect of it is quite tricky because unlike someone who writes the series the standalones you know you can't you can't segment your brain quite so easily because you've got the same characters so so yeah. <laughs> it hasn't happened yet but i think it nearly did a couple of times <laughs> We have one more question from Louisa. It says, I'm an aspiring author, but often get caught up in anxiety when finishing the third or fourth drafts. Have you any advice on getting over the fear of submitting your work? And how do you know when a manuscript is ready to be submitted and that any more changes will just damage the story? Yeah, that, that last one is, is a, a really good point because um, that's why I don't tend to want to do more than about two more drafts with my agent and my editor because uh, I think that you do get to the point where actually you're you're taking away rather than adding um, and it's sort of wood for the trees moment uh, because you're so familiar with it but you know other people coming in will not not pick out that tiny little thing you know so you can get a bit you know too 
you can do too much editing. Um, but generally, I mean, everybody needs editing. I will say that. I mean, I, I used to be employed. One of the things I used to get paid for when I was a copy editor was to edit other people's work. Um, so I know what I'm doing and I'm not bad at it. Um, and I'm not bad at doing it for my own work, but I still need an editor. I absolutely still need an editor. And she's come up with both sort of small things, which I've missed, um, which, cause you always will, and quite big points, which um, always pretty much turn out to be right. So I generally wrong about those and she'll say, well, we should do this. And I, I'll probably say, oh, do we have to? Cause you know, I don't want to change everything, but almost always she's right about that. Uh, so everybody, however good an editor of your own work you think you are, everybody still needs somebody else. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I think the, the, the key in answer to, Louise's question. I think the, the key thing is, is to have a relationship with your editor where you know um, that you can trust them, not only in terms of their judgment, but you know that, that they, are, they are on your side and wanting the thing to be as good as it possibly can be. And it becomes a collaboration at that point. And if you can start feeling that you're collaborating with your editor rather than confronting them, you know, as it were, fighting for the book, that's the best way to be because uh, uh, then you are opening up again, what I was saying earlier about opening up. And I do understand feelings of anxiety about sending your baby out into the big wide world. No one's seen it yet. And I, I get that. I totally get that. And it's always a bit of a terrifying moment, um, but uh, it's part of the process. And I think that's what I would say, um, you know, answer to the question, accept that this is this is what's going to happen you're not in the wrong feeling that way it's it's completely natural and it would be weird if you didn't feel that way in a way you know it, it wouldn't it would argue that you were too confident about the book if you weren't anxious about sending it out so it's a good thing um it's not necessarily enjoyable <laughs> but it's it's part of the process and you should just you know take it for that yeah it's it's, it's one of the i i feel I, I've, um, I'm very much in the same boat uh, as Louisa in that, in that sense of any sharing anything um, of that, just that fear of, of not being quite up to like the standard and stuff. It's, it's a really difficult sort of thing to overcome. Yeah, but people, your, your, your editor will be on your side. Like I said, the editor wants you to be as good as you possibly can be. And they're just there to help you. That's the only way to see it. It really, it really shouldn't be terrifying. It should, it should be a bit alarming, but not, you know, you should feel that you're in good hands. Absolutely. Well, yeah. thank you, Cara, so, so, so much. I it's loved it. Thank you so much for inviting it's, me. <laughs> it's been fascinating talking to you. Yeah, um, very. Yeah, we just can't wait for the future uh, future projects to come out and enjoy it. And yeah, just once again, just a huge thank you. Yeah, thank My you. My pleasure. So I'd love to do it again sometime if, you, if you'd like to. So. Oh, we'd love to. Yeah. <laughs> Sign us up. <laughs> <laughs> well, perhaps if we get the TV all sorted out and we've got an actor, we can come yes. on and talk about that. <laughs> yeah, that'd be <Yeah>. wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah thank you so much once again thanks guys lovely to talk thank to you very much thank you so much for listening to this episode of the audiobook club this episode was sponsored by pro audio voices if you have a story you want to bring to life head over to proaudiovoices.com to get in touch with industry professionals that can take care of every step of production as well as offer support and guidance with marketing growing your brand and boosting your sales once again, that's proaudiovoices.com. Thanks for listening. Hold up. 